This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Miscellany of Men by G. K. Chesterton Section 8 The Red Reactionary the one case for revolution is that it is the only quite clean and complete road to anything, even to restoration. Revolution alone can be not merely a revolt of the living, but also a resurrection of the dead. A friend of mine, one in fact who writes prominently on this paper, was once walking down the street in a town of western France situated in that area it used to be called La Vendée, which in that great creative crisis about 1790 formed a separate and mystical soul of its own, and made a revolution against a revolution. As my friend went down this street, he whistled an old French air which he had found, like Mr. Gandish, in his researches into history, and which had somehow taken his fancy the song to which those last sincere loyalists went into battle. I think the words ran, Monsieur de Charette, Didogens d'Ichy, Le Roy va remettre, Le Fleur de Lis. My friend was and is a radical, but he was and is an Englishman, and it never occurred to him that there could be any harm in singing archaic lyrics out of remote centuries that one had to be a Catholic to enjoy the Diaciri, or a Protestant to remember Lily Bolero. Yet he was stopped and gravely warned that things so politically provocative might get him at least into temporary trouble. A little time after I was helping King George V to get crowned by walking round a local bonfire and listening to a local band. Just as a bonfire cannot be too big, so by my theory of music a band cannot be too loud. And this band was so loud, emphatic, and obvious that I actually recognized one or two of the tunes. And I noticed that quite a formidable proportion of them were Jacobite tunes, that is, tunes that had been primarily meant to keep George V out of his throne forever. Some of the real airs of the old Scottish rebellion were played, such as Charlie is my darling, or What's a Steer Kimmer, songs that men had stung while marching to destroy and drive out the monarchy under which we live. They were songs in which the very kinsmen of the present king were swept aside as usurpers. They were songs in which the actual words King George occurred as a curse and a derision. Yet they were played to celebrate his very coronation, played as promptly and innocently as if they had been grandfather's clock or rural Britannia, or the honeysuckle and the bee. That contrast is the measure, not only between two nations, but between two modes of historical construction and development. For there is not really very much difference, as European history goes, in the time that has elapsed between us and the Jacobite, and between us and the Jacobin. When George III was crowned, the gauntlet of the king's champion was picked up by a partisan of the Stuarts, when George III was still on the throne, the Bourbons were driven out of France, as the Stuarts had been driven out of England. Yet the French are just sufficiently aware that the Bourbons might possibly return, 
that they will take a little trouble to discourage it. Whereas we are so certain that the Stuarts will never return, that we actually play their most passionate tunes as a compliment to their rivals, and we do not even do it tauntingly. I examined the faces of all the bandsmen, and I am quite sure they were devoid of irony. Indeed, it is difficult to blow a wind instrument ironically. We do it quite unconsciously, because we have a huge fundamental dogma, which the French have not. We really believe that the past is past. It is a very doubtful point. Now the great gift of a revolution, as in France, is that it makes men free in the past as well as free in the future. Those who have cleared away everything could, if they liked, put back anything. But we who have preserved everything, we cannot restore anything. Take for the sake of argument the complex and many-colored ritual of the coronation recently completed. That rite is stratified with the separate centuries, from the first rude need of discipline to the last fine shade of culture or corruption. There is nothing that cannot be detected or even dated. The fierce and childish vow of the lords to serve their lord against all manner of folk obviously comes from the real dark ages, no longer confused even by the ignorant with the middle ages. It comes from some chaos of Europe when there was one old Roman road across four of our counties, and when hostile folk might live in the next village. The sacramental separation of one man to be the friend of the fatherless and the nameless belongs to the true Middle Ages, with their great attempt to make a moral and invisible Roman Empire, or, as the coronation service says, to set the cross forever above the ball. Elaborate local tomfooleries, such as that by which the lord of the manor of Worksop is alone allowed to do something or other, these probably belong to the decay of the Middle Ages, when that great civilization died in grotesque liberalism and entangled heraldry. Things like the presentation of the Bible bear witness to the intellectual outburst at the Reformation. Things like the Declaration Against the Mass bear witness to the great wars of the Puritans, and things like the allegiance of the bishops bear witness to the wordy and parenthetical political compromises which, to my deep regret, ended the wars of religion. But my purpose here is only to point out one particular thing. In all that long list of variations, there must be, and there are, things which energetic modern minds would really wish, with a reasonable modification, to restore. Dr. Clifford would probably be glad to see again the great Puritan idealism that forced the Bible into an antique and almost frozen formality. Dr. Horton probably really regrets the old passion that excommunicated Rome. In the same way, Mr. Belloc would really prefer the Middle Ages, as Lord Rosebery would prefer the Erastian oligarchy of the 18th century. The Dark Ages would probably be disputed from widely different motives by Mr. Rudyard Kipling and Mr. Cunningham Graham. But Mr. Cunningham Graham would win. But the black case against conservative or evolutionary politics is that none of these sincere men can win. Dr. Clifford cannot get back to the Puritans. Mr. Belloc cannot get back to the medievals, because, alas, there has been no revolution to leave them a clear space for building or rebuilding. Frenchmen have all the ages behind them and can wander back and pick and choose. But Englishmen 
have all the ages on top of them, and can only lie groaning under that imposing tower without being able to take so much as a brick out of it. If the French decide that their republic is bad, they can get rid of it. But if we decide that a republic was good, we should have much more difficulty. If the French democracy actually desired every detail of the medieval monarchy, they could have it. I do not think they will or should, but they could. If another Dauphine were actually crowned at Reims, if another Joan of Arc actually bore a miraculous banner before him, if medieval swords shook and blazed in every gauntlet, if the golden lilies glowed from every tapestry, if this were really proved to be the will of France and the purpose of Providence, such a scene would still be the lasting and final justification of the French Revolution. For no such scene could conceivably have happened under Louis the Sixteenth. The Separatist and Sacred Things In the very laudable and fascinating extensions of our interest in Asiatic arts or faiths, there are two incidental injustices which we tend nowadays to do our own records and our own religion. The first is the tendency to talk as if certain things were not only present in the higher Orientals, but were peculiar to them. Thus our magazines will fall into a habit of wondering praise of Bushido, the Japanese chivalry, as if no Western knights had ever vowed noble vows, or as if no Eastern knights had ever broken them. Or again, our drawing-rooms will be full of the praises of Indian renunciation and Indian unworldliness as if no Christians had been saints, or as if all Buddhists had been. But if the first injustice is to think of human virtues as peculiarly Eastern, the other injustice is a failure to appreciate what really is peculiarly Eastern. It is too much taken for granted that the Eastern sort of idealism is certainly superior and convincing whereas in truth it is only separate and peculiar. All that is richest, deepest, and subtlest in the East is rooted in pantheism. But all that is richest, deepest, and subtlest in us is concerned with denying passionately that pantheism is either the highest or the purest religion. Thus, in turning over some excellent books, recently written on the spirit of Indian or Chinese art and decoration, I found it quietly and curiously assumed that the artist must be at his best if he flows with the full stream of nature, and identifies himself with all things, so that the stars are his sleepless eyes, and the forest his far-flung arms. Now, in this way of talking, both the two injustices will be found. In so far as what is claimed is the strong sense of the divine in all things, the Eastern artists have no more monopoly of it than they have of hunger and thirst. I have no doubt that the painters and poets of the Far East do exhibit this, but I rebel at being asked to admit that we must go to the Far East to find it. Traces of such sentiment can be found, I fancy, even in other painters and poets. I do not question that the poet Wowo, that ornament of the Eighth Dynasty, may have written the words, Even the most undignified vegetable is for this person capable of producing meditations not to be exhibited by much weeping. But I do not therefore admit that a Western gentleman named Wordsworth, who made a somewhat similar remark, had plagiarized it from Wowo, or was a mere Occidental fable and travesty of that celebrated figure. I do not deny that Tinishona 
wrote that exquisite example of the short Japanese poem entitled Honorable Chrysanthemum in Honorable Hole in Wall. But I do not therefore admit that Tennyson's little verse about the flower in the cranny was not original and even sincere. It is recorded, for all I know, of the philanthropic Emperor Bo, that when he engaged in cutting his garden lawn with a mower made of alabaster and chrysoberyl, he chanced to cut down a small flower, whereupon, being much affected, he commanded his wise men immediately to take down upon tablets of ivory the lines beginning, small and unobtrusive blossom with ruby extremities. But this incident, touching as it is, does not shake my belief in the incident of Robert Burns and the Daisy, and I am left with an impression that poets are pretty much the same everywhere in their poetry and in their prose. I have tried to convey my sympathy and admiration for Eastern art and its admirers, and if I have not conveyed them, I must give it up and go on to more general considerations. I therefore proceed to say, with the utmost respect, that it is cheap, a rarefied and etherealized form of cheek for this school to speak in this way about the mother that bore them, the great civilization of the West. The West also has its magic landscapes, though through our incurable materialism they look like landscapes as well as magic. The West also has its symbolic figures, only they look like men as well as symbols. It will be answered, and most justly, that oriental art ought to be free to follow its own instinct and tradition, that its artists are concerned to suggest one thing and our artists another, that both should be admired in their difference. Profoundly true. But what is the difference? It is certainly not, as the orientalizers assert, that we must go to the Far East for a sympathetic and transcendental interpretation of nature. We have paid a long enough toll of mystics, and even of madmen, to be quit of that disability. Yet there is a difference, and it is just what I suggested. The Eastern mysticism is an ecstasy of unity. The Christian mysticism is an ecstasy of creation, that is, of separation and mutual surprise. The latter says, like St. Francis, my brother fire and my sister water, and the former says, myself fire and myself water. Whether you call the Eastern attitude an extension of oneself into everything, or a contraction of oneself into nothing, is a matter of metaphysical definition. The effect is the same, an effect which lives and throbs throughout all the exquisite arts of the East. This effect is the thing called rhythm, a pulsation of pattern, or of ritual, or of colors, or of cosmic theory, but always suggesting the unification of the individual with the world. But there is quite another kind of sympathy. The sympathy with a thing because it is different. No one will say that Rembrandt did not sympathize with an old woman. But no one will say that Rembrandt painted like an old woman. No one will say that Reynolds did not appreciate children. But no one will say that he did it childishly. The supreme instance of this divine division is sex. And that explains what I could never understand in my youth, why Christendom called the soul the bride of God. For real love is an intense realization of the separateness of all our souls. The most heroic and human love poetry of the world 
is never mere passion, precisely because mere passion really is a melting back into nature, a meeting of the waters. And water is plunging and powerful, but it is only powerful downhill. The high and human love poetry is all about division rather than identity, and in the great love poems even the man, as he embraces the woman, sees her in the same instant afar off, a virgin and a stranger. For well, the first injustice of which we have spoken still recurs, and if we grant that the East has a right to its difference, it is not realized in what we differ. That nursery tale from nowhere about St. George and the Dragon really expresses best the relation between the West and the East. There were many other differences calculated to arrest even the superficial eye between a saint and a dragon. But the essential difference was simply this, that the dragon did want to eat St. George, whereas St. George would have felt a strong distaste for eating the dragon. In most of the stories he killed the dragon. In many of the stories he not only spared, but baptized it. But in neither case did the Christian have any appetite for cold dragon. The dragon, however, really has an appetite for cold Christian, and especially for cold Christianity. This blind intention to absorb, to change the shape of everything and digest it in the darkness of a dragon's stomach, this is what is really meant by the pantheism and cosmic unity of the East. The cosmos as such is cannibal, as old time ate his children. The Eastern saints were saints because they wanted to be swallowed up, the Western saint, like St. George, was sainted by the Western Church precisely because he refused to be swallowed. The same process of thought that has prevented nationalities disappearing in Christendom has prevented the complete appearance of pantheism. All Christian men instinctively resist the idea of being absorbed into an empire, an Austrian, a Spanish, a British, or a Turkish empire. But there is one empire, much larger and much more tyrannical, which free men will resist with even stronger passion. A free man violently resists being absorbed into the empire which is called the universe. He demands home rule for his nationality, but still more home rule for his home. Most of all, he demands home rule for himself. He claims the right to be saved in spite of Moslem fatalism. He claims the right to be damned in spite of theosophical optimism. He refuses to be the cosmos, because he refuses to forget it. THE MUMMER The night before Christmas Eve I heard a burst of musical voices so close that they might as well have been inside the house instead of just outside, so I asked them inside, hoping they might then seem farther away. Then I realized that they were the Christmas mummers who come every year in country parts to enact the rather rigid fragments of the old Christmas play of St. George, the Turkish Knight, and the very venal doctor. I will not describe it, it is indescribable, but I will describe my parallel sentiments as it passed. One could see something of that half-failure that haunts our artistic revivals of medieval dances, carols, or Bethlehem plays. There are elements in all that has come to us from the more morally simple society of the Middle Ages elements which moderns, even when they are medievalists, find it hard to understand and harder to imitate. The first is the primary idea of mummery itself. 
If you will observe a child just able to walk, you will see that his first idea is not to dress up as anybody, but to dress up. Afterwards, of course, the idea of being the king or Uncle William will leap to his lips, but it is generally suggested by the hat he has already let fall over his nose from far deeper motives. Tommy does not assume the hat primarily because it is Uncle William's hat, but because it is not Tommy's hat. It is a ritual investiture, and is akin to those gorgon masks that stiffened the dances of Greece, or those towering mitres that came from the mysteries of Persia, for the essence of such ritual is a profound paradox, the concealment of the personality combined with the exaggeration of the person. The man performing a rite seeks to be at once invisible and conspicuous. It is part of that divine madness which all other creatures wonder at in man, that he alone parades this pomp of obliteration and anonymity. Man is not perhaps the only creature who dresses himself, but he is the only creature who disguises himself. Beasts and birds do indeed take the colors of their environment, but that is not in order to be watched, but in order not to be watched. It is not the formalism of rejoicing, but the formlessness of fear. It is not so with men whose nature is the unnatural. Ancient Britons did not stain themselves blue because they lived in blue forests, nor did Georgian bow and bells powder their hair to match an Arctic landscape. The Britons were not dressing up as kingfishers, nor the bow pretending to be polar bears. Nay, even when modern ladies paint their faces a bright mauve, it is doubted by some naturalists whether they do it with the idea of escaping notice. So merrymakers, or mummers, adopt their costume to heighten and exaggerate their own bodily presence and identity, not to sink it, primarily speaking, in another identity. It is not acting that comparatively low profession, comparatively I mean, it is mummery, and as Mr. Kensett would truly say, all elaborate ritual is mummery. That is, it is the noble conception of making man something other and more than himself when he stands at the limit of human things. It is only careful faddists and feeble German philosophers who want to wear no clothes and be natural in their Dionysian revels. Natural men, really vigorous and exultant men, want to wear more and more clothes when they are reveling. They want worlds of waistcoats and forests of trousers and pagodas of tall hats toppling up to the stars. Thus it is with the lingering mummers at Christmas in the country. If our more refined revivers of miracle plays, or Morris dances, tried to reconstruct the old mummers' play of St. George and the Turkish Night, I do not know why they do not. They would think at once of picturesque and appropriate dresses. St. George's panoply would be pictured from the best books of armor and blazonry. The Turkish Night's arms and ornaments would be traced from the finest saracenic arabesques when my garden door opened on christmas eve and st george of england entered the appearance of that champion was slightly different his face was energetically blackened all over with soot above which he wore an aged and very tall top hat he wore his shirt outside his coat like a surplice and he flourished a thick umbrella now do not, I beg you, talk about ignorance, or suppose that the mummer in question, he is a very pleasant rat-catcher with a tenor voice, did this because he knew no better. 
try to realize that even a rat-catcher knows St. George of England was not black and did not kill the dragon with an umbrella. The rat-catcher is not under this delusion any more than Paul Veronos thought that very good men have luminous rings round their heads, any more than the Pope thinks that Christ washed the feet of the twelve in a cathedral, any more than the Duke of Norfolk thinks the lions on a tabard are like the lions at the zoo. These things are denaturalized because they are symbols, because the extraordinary occasion must hide or even disfigure the ordinary people. Black faces were to medieval mummeries what carved masks were to Greek plays. It was called being bizzarded. My rat-catcher is not sufficiently arrogant to suppose for a moment that he looks like St. George, but he is sufficiently humble to be convinced that if he looks as little like himself as he can, he will be on the right road. This is the soul of mummy, the ostentatious secrecy of men in disguise. There are, of course, other medieval elements in it which are also difficult to explain to the fastidious medievalists of today. There is, for instance, a certain output of violence into the void. It can best be defined as a raging thirst to knock men down without the faintest desire to hurt them. All the rhymes with the old ring have the trick of turning on everything in which the rhymesters most sincerely believed, merely for the pleasure of blowing off steam as startling yet careless phrases. When Tennyson says that King Arthur drew all the petty princedoms under him, and made a realm and ruled. His grave royalism is quite modern. Many medievals outside the medieval republics believed in monarchy as solemnly as Tennyson. But that older verse, when good King Arthur ruled this land, he was a goodly king. He stole three pecks of barley meal to make a bag pudding. It is far more Arthurian than anything in the idols of the king. There are other elements, especially that sacred thing that can perhaps be called anachronism. All that to us is anachronism was to medievals merely eternity. But the main excellence of the mumming play lies still, I think, in its uproarious secrecy. If we cannot hide our hearts in healthy darkness, at least we can hide our faces in healthy blacking. If you cannot escape like a philosopher into a forest, at least you can carry the forest with you like a jack-in-the-green. It is well to walk under the universal ensigns, and there is an old tale of a tyrant to whom a walking forest was the witness of doom. That, indeed, is the very intensity of the notion. A masked man is ominous, but who shall face a mob of masks? End of section 8